It's the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning and welcome in to the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. We appreciate you tuning in on this gorgeous Thursday morning. The morning after the Milwaukee Bucks, I don't want to say do the improbable, did something I did not think they were able to do. And that is even up this series at two games apiece with a massive, massive victory last night that we, of course, We'll be all over here, dissect, break down, give my thoughts, hear your thoughts. Let me break down a lot of NBA Finals game number four and start to look ahead to a pivotal, maybe winner take all game number five, or could the winner of game five end up winning the NBA Finals? We will discuss, but of course, it's not just the NBA Finals. We have a lot to get into, but other things as well, because Major League Baseball is at its unofficial halfway point in the season with the All-Star break here uh, about to wrap up. Tonight, we will revisit my MLB preseason predictions. Hint, or I guess really spoiler, whew, a lot wrong. I know people love, including myself, I will, be, I will be honest here. I do appreciate when people admit they're wrong, and I do like kind of listening to them when they, uh, when they are wrong and try to give their thoughts on what happened. Man, I was wrong a ton. So if you like hearing people admit they're wrong, 9.40 Eastern, 40 minutes from now, is the time for you to listen because there is a ton wrong. A lot of surprises with Major League Baseball. We'll do top five NFL MVP candidates. Russell Wilson speaks. Do you believe him? I don't. I'll tell you what he said. And if you believe him, we'll get your thoughts as well. Ton of different ways to get involved in the show. You know, you know I always love, I should say, hearing your thoughts, hearing your input, hearing your side of what we watch, whether it's the NBA Finals, NFL, MLB. Always love getting you involved in the show. Two ways to do that. Very simple. We're streaming live on Twitter. Either the handles are WWSRN underscore radio, WWSRN underscore radio. Also at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Boom. Follow those two handles. Click on the live link. Watch it through Twitter. And then you comment right there on Twitter nice and easy. If you're a Facebook fan, no worries. We have you covered there. Facebook, our, uh, our page is Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can check out the live stream right there. Comment your thoughts on the live stream right there as well. We're also live on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So love to hear your thoughts about the show. Comment on Facebook, comment on Twitter. As a reminder, we are coming to you from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. So we just mentioned it, right? The Bucks with a huge, huge, huge Game 4 victory last night, 109-103. They even up the NBA Finals at two games apiece. The home team has won all four games so far. And kind of watching last night and kind of thinking about how to attack game number four, there was a common theme, I thought, in last night's game. But not only last night for Milwaukee, but really this entire postseason, their theme has kind of held strong, and it really showed again last night. And that is the theme of resilience. Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, two tremendous broadcasters on ESPN who did the game last night, they brought it up and, you know, kind of, I really liked the word that they used in resilience. 
Because that's what this really this entire postseason has been for Milwaukee. Right? Don't let's not forget game number one, the first game of the playoffs against the Heat, a team, their nemesis that eliminated them in the bubble last year. Jimmy Butler going off in that series, knocking the Bucks out early. And then if you remember in that game, Jimmy Butler, game on the line, down by two, drives right past Giannis onto the Kupo, two-time MVP, defensive player of the year. Scores the basket to tie the game, send it to overtime. And I'm about you. Okay, maybe here we go again. Heat are in, you know, the Bucks' head. Maybe this is now a turning point in the series. Chris Milton, it's a big jumper in overtime to win it. Bucks win that game. They obviously end up just swooping the Heat. Next series, yeah, the Bucks fall down 0-2 to the Nets. Then after winning both games at home, fall down 3-2 after Kevin Durant had that all-time performance with no help from anyone else, mind you, on the Nets. They get that W, go up 3-2. But as we know, Bucks win game six. Bucks win game seven. Then you lose in the next series. You lose game one. Boom, adversity again. Then you lose Giannis in game number four. Win those two games without Giannis as well. And now, as we just mentioned, the finals. They dropped the first two games in Phoenix. Rally to win the next two. This has been a very resilient bunch. Because it hasn't been pretty this entire postseason run. But it has been a very resilient bunch the Milwaukee Bucks have. And it showed again last night. And that's the reason they won game four. Because they had resilience. And Chris Middleton was able to show the ability to bounce back from an okay game in game three. The solid first half, scoring 15 points, but really went quiet in half number two. And he really was huge, obviously, last night for the Bucks. 40 points. On 15 to 33 shooting, at 40 points, a career playoff high. And not only did he score a career playoff high in 40 points, right? That, that's very impressive in on his face. But he also did it when the Bucks needed him most. Right? This isn't a game that he's not playing alongside Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, like in game two, when he scored 42 points, or in game number three, when he scored 41 points, he's having himself a field day. He is giving the Suns defense fits. Chris Middleton did so where Giannis had, listen, a pretty good game. Don't get me wrong. He had 26 points, 14 rebounds. That's pretty damn good. Compared to what we saw in games two and three, okay, a little bit less. And I was of the thought process personally that, hey, if Giannis doesn't have 35, 40-point nights on a regular basis, I'm not really feeling great about the Bucks' chances. And you had Chris Middleton last night putting that thought to bed, debunking it, scoring, again, 40 points, really when the Bucks needed the most yeah, Drew Holiday really being inefficient all night long. It was the Chris Middleton show when they relied on him, when they needed him the most. Chris Middleton showed up a very impressive. And not only did he show up, because, hey, 40 points is really damn impressive, especially in the playoffs. He was able to show up late, late in the game, crunch time, an area that the Bucks have struggled with this postseason. And down the stretch, the last three minutes, two minutes, minute of the game, that's where he was at his best. Think about this. The final two minutes and 15 seconds of this game. A pivotal game. Well, if you're the Bucs, if you think about it, right? Giannis and company in game three talked about how they went into game number three with the basically must-win situation in their head, right? You go down 3-0 or 0-3, I guess, in this situation if you're Milwaukee. Series is over. No team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in the NBA playoffs. I don't think this is going to be the first time that happened in this postseason. So Giannis admitted, hey, game three, it was a must win. Basically, this is the series. If you want to have a shot here, we got to win game number three. And they got it. And I will say this. 
they had to have the same mindset for game number four. Because you drop game number four on the uh, at home, I should say. Then have to go on the road to Phoenix with a chance to Phoenix for Phoenix to close out the NBA Finals. We have seen a few 3-1 comebacks in this postseason. The Clippers, most notably, right? The, um, doing so, uh, or bl- I should say blowing two leads, excuse me, last year, we the Denver Nuggets come back uh, twice down 3-1. We saw the Cavaliers in the finals do it to the Warriors, erasing a 3-1 deficit. It has happened. It doesn't happen that often, and that's not a position you want to be in. So again, game number four for the Bucs. You talk about must win. You don't want to go down 3-1 going to Phoenix for the Suns to have a chance to win the NBA Finals. This was a must win for Milwaukee. And down the stretch, in a very tight game, it wasn't Giannis that was the one, you know, putting Milwaukee on his back. It wasn't Drew Holiday. It wasn't Brooke Lopez. It was Chris Middleton, who in the final two minutes and 15 seconds of this game, outscored the Suns by himself 10-4. to 10-4, to four, he outscored and made every clutch bucket himself to where the Suns had no answer. Finished the fourth quarter with a total of 14 points. So again, 14 out of the 40 points in the fourth quarter. Scored 10 points the last 2 minutes and 15 seconds of the game. Every clutch basket the Bucks needed, he delivered. And this is also on the back and on the heels. Now on the other side, right, if you're watching, if you're the Bucks watching Devin Booker go off in the second half, White hot in the third quarter. And you have Chris Milton calmly, collectively making shots and continuing to put the pressure on the Suns. A ton of resilience. Very impressive from Chris Middleton. And you had a ton of resilience from Giannis as well. Because, again, we just mentioned, right, he had a really solid game. 26 points, 14 rebounds. The only reason why you could look at that stat line and feel, eh, okay, it wasn't, you know, maybe the best game for Giannis is because what he did the last two games before this in games two and games three Again, we, like we mentioned, scoring 42 in game number two in a loss. And then backing up with 41 points in game number three in a must-win situation. So offensively, he was really solid and very efficient. Defensively, he was grabbing re- rebounds left and right. But defensively is really where this game came down to and he made his bones. That block of DeAndre Eaton with just a minute 10 left on the alley-oop where I still don't understand physically how he was even able to be in position to make the play. Right, Devin Booker comes off the screen. It's the only person between Devin Booker and the basket is Giannis. And not only, you know, so now basically Giannis is forced to guard two guys at once. You see the lob go up, Devin Booker. Basically, Giannis just turns, doesn't even get a running start, just pivots, jumps, and is able to meet DeAndre Ayton at the rim for one of. Now, I'm not going to say the best block. LeBron James' Game 7 chase down block with just over a minute left or under a minute left in Game 7 of the 2016 Finals, by far will be, to me, in my mind, the best block we've seen in NBA playoff history. But it is right there for physically how he was able to do so and where it was in the game. Bucks stripped by two. I mean, that alley-oop goes down. We have a tie game with just over a minute left. Who knows how that changes the trajectory of the game. But as we mentioned, you know, Chris Milton outscored the Suns 10-4 on his own in the last two minutes. If that alley-oop goes down, Maybe it takes a little momentum away from the Bucs. Maybe it gives a little to Phoenix. Maybe this game is 3-1 and this series is over. That could be the block. That could be the play that turns this entire series around. So you have great resilience from Giannis, who, again, was having a pretty good game, but makes one of the biggest plays, arguably so far, the biggest play in this series. 
to give them life and, and to turn the game around and help them win. And I will give credit to the Bucks. The entire Bucks team deserves credit here because they showed a ton of resilience. Because look, I mean, game number four, it was not exactly like game number three where after the first quarter, the Bucks dominated the Suns and won the last three quarters. This was a game where it's almost the quite opposite. The Suns won uh, quarter number one. They were, the, they were the team coming out hot. And coming out of halftime tied, you had the Suns open up a nine-point lead to start the fourth quarter. And the Bucks are basically trailing almost this entire game. And to go down by nine early in the third quarter, watching off the heels, mind you, Devin Booker, we talked about how unconscious he was. In the third quarter, Devin Booker went seven for seven, scored 20 points, or I'm sorry, 18 points, excuse me, uh, 18 points in the third quarter alone. So now if you're the Bucs, trying to make a comeback, trying to keep your season alive, watching this happen, they were able to show resilience that they didn't panic, stayed strong, stayed true. And even though Devin Booker is having himself a massive bounce back game, they never panicked. And it's like continued to take their shots, continue to make their shots. Their offense, which we've talked about in the past, kind of getting out of rhythm, getting out of whack. Maybe almost you feel a panic start to set in where they start to do almost try to play hero ball instead of just sticking in the flow of the offense. The, I will give the Bucks a ton of credit because they showed resilience because they never flinched. They stayed calm and executed down the stretch. So the Bucks deserve, obviously, a ton of credit this morning. Because for me, personally, as a doubter, someone who picked the Suns to win game number four, who I picked the Suns before the series started to win the series in six, I didn't think the Bucks were consistent enough, especially coming off of game number three, so I thought they would be able to match that performance in game three and win again at home in game number four. They have struggled in close games in the past. They have panicked in the big moment. And that all went away last night. Very impressive performance. And now all of a sudden, they go to Phoenix with the momentum. There was, I thought, a lot of premature Jumping on the Bucks bandwagon after game number three, where we saw Phoenix, obviously, in the first two games, really handle the Bucks and, for the most part, you know, uh, control that series. And then after game three's victory by Milwaukee, between Sunday night when the game ended and Wednesday night, last night, when the game started, there was a lot of pro-Bucks feelings, where there was a lot of picking Milwaukee, there was a lot of praise for the Bucks, deservingly so, but I kind of thought and felt that it was maybe a little too much for just one game. Like, the Suns were still up 2-1. They played one of the worst games they could have played. Devin Booker was awful. Like, there was a lot that went Milwaukee's way that I thought was going to come back and even itself out in game number four. And that's kind of why I thought the Suns would bounce back and win game four. But there was a lot of pro-Milwaukee. There was a lot of buying into the Bucks that I didn't feel comfortable with doing after just game number three. But I doubted them, and they so far, I was wrong. I am wrong. Bucks have been great. A lot of resilience last night. That was the theme. If we play the little what's the word game to start the show, the word for the Bucks last night, resilient. That was on full display, and they're a massive game for victory. So now looking ahead to game number five. We have, folks, ourselves a series here. Home game is 104. Going back to Phoenix for game number five. Best of three now. That's what, really what it is. Who are you picking to win the finals? Bucks or the Suns? I'll give you my thoughts when we do come back here. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here.
on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You know who's feeling good this morning. Everyone in the Milwaukee Bucks organization, every Bucks fan at Pfizer Forum last night, and the tens of thousands of fans in the Deer District. It is a good morning if you're a Bucks fan. If you're up early with us, we appreciate it. Sure, if you're a little tired, you're feeling no pain after that massive, massive victory last night to even the series at two games apiece. To in a game, especially in game number four, where we'll say game number four did mirror a lot of this Bucks postseason run, right? Because part of the reason why. I have, I don't say I haven't been a Bucks believer, but I will admit I did jump off the bandwagon kind of midway through or towards the end of the Nets series because I just personally could not trust them. I could not in good conscience rely on the Bucks to put up a, a performance that is championship worthy on a nightly basis. And in the, in the Nets series, switching game number five, they had the series there and I thought they blew a massive opportunity. Now, of course, I ended up being wrong. They win game six, they win game seven. Game number four, when Giannis goes down in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Hawks, I thought the Hawks had the advantage. Couldn't have been more wrong. Games five and six go Milwaukee's way. Down 0-2 in the finals. Even though I started with the Bucks, uh, with the Suns in six, I still feel confident uh, Phoenix would win. And now we are sitting here with the Bucks evening up the NBA Finals at two games apiece. The home team has won all four games so far. And like I mentioned, Bucks now, even though there's a long break in between games, heading to Phoenix with momentum for game number five. So now that we have ourselves a series, who are you taking? I started with the Suns in six. I'm not sure if you picked the Suns. Are you wavering now? You're feeling strong. Or are you going with the Bucks? And if you pick the Bucks, how are you feeling? You must be feeling great. I'll tell you that. Are you picking the Suns or the Bucks to win this best of three and win the NBA Finals? For me, I'm still rolling with the Suns. I am still picking the Suns. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll go from six to seven. I still think the Phoenix Suns will win the NBA Finals, in part from what I saw last night in game number four. Here's what I mean by that. Game number four, last night for the Suns, was very uncharacteristic. They did something last night that they have rarely done this postseason, rarely done this regular season, and even though they're a young group, it's pretty hard to, to accomplish what they have. They have rarely been themselves in the postseason. Right? They, they don't really turn the ball over. They make a lot of their shots. They're efficient. They don't have many dumb fouls. But all of that happened, all that came to a head last night. And I personally think, and Michael Wilbon said, and I agree with him, the Suns gave the game away last night. They had that game one. They're up by nine early in the fourth quarter. And for all different reasons we're going to get into here, they gave that game away. But I think those mistakes, those errors that they committed in game number four are correctable, are fixable, and I do think they'll be cleaned up by the time game number five rolls around on Saturday night in Phoenix. So let's start with the turnovers. Very, very sloppy game with the basketball for Phoenix. Right? And those turnovers were a huge catalysts in helping Milwaukee get back into this game. The Suns had 17 total turnovers in game number four, one of the highest they've ever had in the regular season this year. 
tied for the most they've had in a playoff game this year. You have to go back to game number two in the first round against the Lakers, which is two months ago, was the last time they had 17 turnovers in a playoff game. So very uncharacteristic for a team that does that takes care of the ball very well and does not give the other team many opportunities. But a big reason for the 17 turnovers, a big reason for the sloppiness, was Chris Paul. Five turnovers he had last night. And again, talk about uncharacteristic. You go through his games this season. He's played in 70 regular season games. Obviously, he's played in, in most of the postseason games as well, outside of the three that he missed for, uh, for being in the health and safety protocols. Or the two he missed, excuse me, in the health and safety protocols. He has turned the ball over five times or more this entire season, just five times. He historically, and this year is no different, has been a great handler of the basketball, does not turn it over. His assist to turnover ratio is always extremely high. But last night was not the case. Right? He had some awful, awful turnovers, especially late. Like the last one, the last turnover, turnover number five he had last night. Late in the game, under a minute left, or he slipped on the floor on his, by his own doing, lost control of the basketball and turned it over to Drew Holiday, which is 32 seconds left, down by two. That's the game right there. You know, that's it. We could talk about the, the, the Giannis block, and that was massive, 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 massive for the Bucs in terms of momentum, in terms of keeping this game or keeping their lead, and could have easily, when we look back at this, whoever wins it, well, I should say the Bucs win, we could end up looking back at this block as this, the, really the series-changing play. But let's also not forget, after the block, the Suns defensively got to stop. They got the ball back. And Chris Paul takes up the court, slips and falls, turns it over, and there's basically your ball game. So the turnovers are very un-CP3 like and very un-Suns like in game number four. I believe it will be cleaned up for game five. I know Chris Paul looked tired. I know he his legs looked weary, and maybe that was the you know a bigger reason and a larger part for the the more uh, the turnovers. He's had 15 turnovers now in the last three games. Again, very un-CP3 like. I do think this would be cleaned up for game number five. Going home will help the Suns. And I don't think we'll see 17 turnovers again in game number four. Or in game number five, I should say. How about crunch time play, too? Just another thing where the Bucks were tremendous in game number four down the stretch while the Suns struggled. That is not usually how things go. Right? When you look at now, two minutes, seven seconds left in this game last night. Game is tied at 99. The Bucs took four shots, made two of them from the field, hit all six of their free throws. They executed it basically as bad as, as well as you could have asked down the stretch there to close out a game. So the Bucs were making their shots. The Suns didn't. Even though they made the same number of jumpers, two out of four, or two out of six, excuse me, they had the costly CP3 turnover. You had the Giannis block on DeAndre Aiden. You had, even though one of those baskets, Chris Paul just, Got a layup with like two seconds left, so really we shouldn't even count that one. But the Suns weren't making their shots. Well, the Bucks were, and the Bucks were also doing the small things. The defense, the blocks, the steals, hitting their free throws to not give the Suns a chance to come back in the game. And we talked about before, we'll bring it up again here. Chris Milton by himself was better than the entire uh, Suns team down the stretch. He outscored them 10-4 to by himself. In the final two minutes and 15 seconds of this game. Now, a lot of credit to Chris Middleton. Again, he has 
shown up in the clutch before in this postseason. He has lifted the Bucks tremendously, and he did so last night, really without the help of Giannis at all. Giannis had a very solid game, but especially down the stretch, it was the Chris Middleton show, and he did it all himself. The thing I will say, though, about that is I'm not sure how sustainable it is when you are relying on just one player to basically win you the game down the stretch. And that goes to the reason why, on a normal level this year, the Bucks, and even going back to, you know, if you look at this core, going back to the 2019 series against the Raptors, going back to the bubble last year against the Heat, this team is really not a good clutch time team because of what we just mentioned. They are extremely reliant on one player, Chris Middleton, to create and make the shots. Like, even though Giannis is a superstar, Giannis is a two-time MVP, Giannis is the best player in the Bucs, one of the best players in all of the NBA. He's a superstar, right? But there's a reason why, even though Giannis is the best player on this team, we have consistently on the show talked about how Chris Milton is the most important player on this team to win a championship. Because down the stretch, in close games, it's Chris Middleton taking the shots. It's Chris Middleton with the pressure on him to create and win the game for the Bucs, not Giannis. Right? Usually, in the NBA, the superstar on the team is the one getting the shots late. Kevin Durant with the Nets, LeBron James with the Lakers. I've seen Devin Booker with the Suns. You know, any superstar that plays usually has the ball late in his hands, especially in the playoffs, the chance to win the game. The Bucs are really the only team you can kind of point to here that once it gets late, they take the ball out of their superstars' hands. Let's look. The final three minutes and 40 seconds of this game, and we just mentioned it was a close game down the stretch. The final three minutes and 40 seconds of this game, Giannis took zero shots. Didn't attempt a field goal. Didn't make a field goal. Didn't go to the free throw line. He basically was not involved in the offense at all Basically, the last four minutes of the game. It was Chris Milton, Chris Milton, Chris Milton. Now, look, I understand you kind of play the hits. Like, that's for us in radio. That's what they tell you to do. Play the hits. Talk about all the biggest storylines. That's what people want to hear about. That's what people want to talk about. The Bucks last night played the hits. Chris, Chris Milton was having himself a fourth quarter. But this is not, you know, a one-off. This is what the Bucks do down the stretch. They rely on Chris Milton and Chris Milton alone to continually make big shots late to give themselves a chance to win. Whereas you look on the other side, the Suns, I understand, again, Game 4 was not their best performance. Game 3 obviously did not go their way either. But the Suns at least have depth in scoring. That they, You have multiple options down the stretch where it's not just one player and you hope he makes the shots. If not, you're kind of screwed. They have Devin Booker. Obviously, we saw last night was going off, but he can hit shots late. He has hit some clutch shots. Chris Paul, as we know, has been a tremendous closer at all different points in this postseason. Cam Johnson is a very good sharpshooter. DeAndre Ayton has made a few clutch baskets this postseason. The point is the Suns have a lot of different guys they can go to to get it done late. Whereas for Milwaukee, now you're looking at a best of three, it's just Chris Middleton. Game number five, if we're in the same situation as game number four, where it's a close game late, guess what we're going to see? The ball going and cycling through Chris Middleton. Giannis is not going to be factored in a way, unless it's through an alley-oop, unless it's through a a post-touch where he has a mismatch. It is Chris Middleton they rely on to either make or break the game, win or lose the game. 
So right now, in a best of three going forward, I will take the Suns, and I feel confident in the Suns when it comes down to crunch time, when it comes down to making a basket. If Devin Booker doesn't have it, okay, you know what? CP3 can take a shot, and I feel confident he'll make it. There are plenty of different guys in the Suns that can step up and take a shot and make it, whereas for the Bucs, there's only one. And if Chris Milton's having a bad game, you're kind of SOL. So I think going forward here, the Suns will straighten out their game four woes or, or their, their late game woes in game four, excuse me, and be better down the stretch. Another reason why I'm believing so far in the Suns in the series. Turnovers, I think they'll clean those up and be better. Late game situations, I think the Suns will improve. Fouls, look, officiating is obviously part of the game. And we know, especially last night, fouls had a massive impact on the game. Now, I'm not saying the officiating was pro-Milwaukee. I'm just saying in general, Devin Booker did not do a good job of giving himself a chance to stay in the game. Because the game changed. Let's call for what it is. Devin Booker is white hot in the third quarter. The game changes when he picks up his fifth foul early on in the fourth quarter. Ten minutes and 50 seconds left in this fourth quarter. Boom, Devin Booker whistled for his fifth foul. Probably the worst timing you could ever have. Because guess what? By that point, up to that point, he had had 38 points in the game. And he is coming off a third quarter where he literally didn't miss. Seven for seven from the field, 18 points scored. He helped the Suns go up by six by the time he recorded that fifth foul. So when he sits out for almost half the fourth quarter, your best player, really the only one, by the way, who's feeling it, Chris Paul is having an off shooting night. Jake Crowder isn't consistent. Dundra Aiden is not scoring a ton. Like, there is not many players that stepped up outside of Devin Booker last night. So that was the worst possible scenario if you're the Suns, to have Devin Booker be in foul trouble. And guess what? Even when he came in, with just under six minutes left to go in the game, you still, even though you're in, you're still not able to truly play the game you want to play up to that point because Devin Booker has to have in the back of his mind, I can't get a sixth foul, which means he has to be less aggressive both offensively and defensively. Defensively, Right When we talk about defense, the Bucs started attacking him. And it almost worked. When Devin Booker went up to try to contest that Drew Holiday layup, I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe what I saw. That he would be, frankly, that dumb. To put himself in a situation where he could have fouled out with just about, I believe it was three minutes left. And frankly, he should have fouled out and got a gift. A gift from the referees at postgame. Admitted, yeah, we missed that one. Yeah, Devin Booker did foul me. You didn't call it. I couldn't believe it. Those are almost automatic on a fast break when you have a defender try to contest a layup that it's a foul. So it almost worked where the Bucs were attacking him defensively, almost got him to foul out. But even though he didn't, as you saw, he only scored four points in the fourth quarter and didn't have, one, was not in the same rhythm, obviously for sitting down for almost half the fourth quarter, and then wasn't able to be as aggressive offensively when he was on the court because he had to make sure in the back of his mind, hey, I can't foul out of this game. So I think Monty Williams, the big adjustment for him is helping Devin Booker play smarter. He just did with DeAndre Ayton, right? We just saw DeAndre Ayton get in foul trouble in game number three. Game number four, he was able to fix that, and he was able to stay in the game a lot longer. I think we have the same effect here where Devin Booker is going to play smarter and not be not put himself in a position to where now all of a sudden he has to play the foul game and sit for long stretches of time. That really throws off the momentum for him and kind of throws the entire offense of the Suns out of whack. So I think game five and the rest of the series, that'll be fixed. And look, let's just call for what is the final one here. Suns have home court advantage. 
They've been a really good home team this entire year. In this series alone, the home team has won all four games. So now in a best of three, tied 2-2, you have the Suns with two of the three games at home. 8-2 and two is their record so far in the postseason this year. They've had one of the best home records in the NBA during the regular season, 27-9. That's a huge boost. You heard, we saw the shaking, the raucous atmosphere, the craziness from the fans in Milwaukee. I mean, we're, I have never seen, I have never seen a situation, a scene, where there are more fans outside the stadium than in. There's been close, you know, if you had 5,000, 10,000 fans outside stadiums watching games. I mean, you look at the numbers, there's 25, 30,000 fans outside of Fiserv Forum watching the game, double almost what's inside the stadium, inside the arena. So you have almost 50,000 fans just in that one area trying to cheer the Bucks on. It's a massive home court advantage for Milwaukee. But guess what? Suns equally have a very good and impressive home court advantage, and now you get two out of the three games at home. All you got to do is just win your home games. Tough to win on the road. Tough to win on the road in the NBA Finals. Tough to win on the road with these two raucous atmospheres where both fan bases have been starved. The Bucs have won one title in their history. Hasn't been since 1971. The Suns have never won an NBA championship. So these fans are more rabid, are more loud, or more crazy than ever. Now I think that home court advantage will, will favor the Suns. So for home court advantage... I think the foul situation will work out better for Phoenix going forward. I don't think they'll be as sloppily or sloppily turning the ball over as much as they did in game number four. 17 turnovers. That really was a huge reason why the Bucs won this game. And clutch time, even though, even though he went the Bucs way last night, even though the Suns struggled late and Chris Milton couldn't miss, the rest of the way, I still feel more confident in a late-game situation that trusting the Suns can get it done over the Bucks. So I'm still picking the Bucs. Uh, I'm, I'm still picking the Suns to win this series. I think Phoenix will still win. I'm not wavering off that pick. I'm still confident. Phoenix can win two more games to become NBA champions. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Who do you have winning this series, Bucks or Suns? We'll get your thoughts. And when we do come back, We'll sprinkle in a little baseball here. Halfway point of the season unofficially, a lot of surprises. Who has been the most surprising team in baseball? We'll answer that question by revisiting my preseason MLB predictions. And if you love hearing people admit they're wrong, you're going to want to stick around for this one. I'll tell you why when the Ronnie Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We will circle back to game number four, Bucks Suns, in a little bit here. Give you my thoughts for game number five. I still have the Suns winning this series. Games three and four have not gone Phoenix's way. They're going back home. That should help. A great home team. The home team has won all four games in this series. I am still sticking with the Suns. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you agree, disagree? Were you on the Suns now flipping to the Bucks? You flipping from the Bucks now to the Suns? You sticking with the Bucks or you sticking with the Suns? 
Who are you picking to win the NBA Finals? Facebook Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well as where you can tweet your thoughts. Comment on Facebook. Comment on YouTube. Worldwide Sports Network. Right that is where we are live on this beautiful Thursday morning. And we appreciate you, as we always do, tuning in to start your morning, start your day with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Right Network. So we will, like I said, circle back to that in a little bit. We still have some MLB preview, or MLB preview. We still have some NFL preview to get to, including top five NFL MVP candidates. We'll do that in 15 minutes. Put a little game of believe or make believe with Russell Wilson's comments. But we will, before we do that, squeeze in a little bit of baseball here. Because we are at the halfway point, unofficial this season, right? You have the all-star break. Just go down. The AL wins again. As an NL guy myself, let's see the NL win, but what are you going to do? But now, kind of, we're at the halfway point officially. I figure it's a good time to kind of look back. Who has been surprising? Who has been better than expected? Who has been worse so far than we thought heading into the season? So, we will bring back and revisit some of my preseason predictions here because I have gotten a ton, a ton wrong. A lot of surprising teams, both positively and negatively, So I'll ask you this question here before we get going. Who has been the most surprising team this Major League Baseball season? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well as we can tweet your thoughts or write it right on the live stream on Twitter, which is at both of those handles. At WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show. Who has been the most surprising team this baseball season? There's been a lot. Now, if we just put surprising as, wow, I'm surprised that they're this good. I'm surprised that they're this bad. The San Francisco Giants, to me, have been the most surprising, surprising team this season. We'll dive into that here as I kind of recap and give you my pre uh, my playoff picks going forward. So a lot of surprises, and boy, have I gotten a ton wrong. Let's start in the AL East. I picked the Yankees to win this division. I picked the Yankees to go to the World Series. And man, they have looked anything but a division winner. They've looked anything but a World Series contender. Because guess what they have done, the Yankees, this year so far? And listen, as a Mets fan, don't hate to see it. They have basically struggled in every aspect of the game. Their offense can't score runs. They're 23rd in Major League Baseball in terms of runs scored. Their defense hasn't been great. Gleyber Torres especially has been a butcher at shortstop. The base running has been just absolutely horrific. So they don't really help themselves in the small areas to try to win games. Chapman has melted down and really has hurt that bullpen. The starting pitching doesn't have a ton of depth, even though they haven't really been the issue. There's not a lot of depth. Corey Kluber is hurt. James and Tyon hasn't really been the project that they've hoped. There's been a lot of struggle so far throughout the Yankee lineup, throughout the Yankee pitching staff. So now the Yankees got from a team where I thought was going to be World Series contenders to now halfway through, you know, and almost 15 days away from the trade deadline, they can't be buyers at the deadline. They can't. They are too far back. They're eight games out of division lead. I don't think they're just, in general, a good enough team to where if you add a piece or two, that will turn them around. The Yankees went from a World Series pick, in my mind, to now a team that shouldn't even add at the deadline. That's how dead in the water they are at this point in the season. So the Yankees really crushed that pick as you have the Red Sox and Rays 1-2 in the AL East. The Central, whew, just another brutal pick by yours truly. I had the Twins winning this division. The hitting has been fine for the Twins, and I kind of thought that the pitching would come around a little bit 
and just be good enough for the for the lineup and, and the offense to win more most games and, and win more games than I. I thought the injuries for the White Sox, especially you know in uh, in training camp or in spring training. Not to mention, I was very skeptical about Tony Larusa and what he would um, bring to this young but talented White Sox team. Hasn't been pretty, right? We've had some explosions. We've had some pushback already. But he hasn't been the issue why they're struggling. But boy, the Twins have struggled. Pitching staff could not be worse. Fourth worst team ERA in all of baseball. Out of five starting pitchers, Jose Barrios, you ready for this, is the only starter on the Twins staff with an ERA that is under four. Under four. That's it. There's only one guy. Out of the starting five with an ERA under four, that's Jose Barrios, and he probably is going to get traded. The Twins have been a disaster, and shame on me for trying to believe that they would hold off the White Sox. Stupid pick. So the Yankees, terrible, awful pick. The Twins, brutal pick. Here's one in the AOS where I was wrong, but not egregiously wrong. I picked the Athletics to win the AOS. So... Hey, listen, the Athletics have been good this year. They're a wild card team. They're close to the Astros in the division race. But I was not more wrong about them as I am. I am way more wrong about the Astros. Because I'll be honest, I came into this season not really feeling great about the Astros, right? They had a rocky 2020 season. Jose Altuve really struggled at the play. Carlos Correa wasn't great. They lose uh, George Springer. Their depth in the rotation kind of took a hit when you lose. Uh, well, obviously, they lost Garrett Cole two years ago, and they had Justin Verlander get hurt. And despite that, I had, or at least I thought coming into this year, eh, I don't really think they'll turn it around. They have a lot of talent. I did not think they'd be that much better in 2021 than they were in 2020. And could not have been more wrong. Offensively, they're the best team in baseball by far. They are first in team OPS, first in team batting average, first in runs scored, first in most hits, first in fewer strikeouts. They have done it all and they are looking like not only the best team in baseball, they are looking like the Astros from 2017 to 2019 when they were the best team in the sport for that three-year run. Won a World Series, made two World Series as we know. They were tremendous. And that's the team that we are seeing now. And I, to be honest, I doubted that they could get back to that level. Jose Otuve has been great. Carlos Correa, Michael Brantley. Pitching has been solid. They have been a very, very, very good team. So Athletics, they've been fine. They're, they're a playoff team. But boy, was I wrong about the Astros. I thought they wouldn't be as good as they were. I thought 2020 would be, you know, they'd be a little better, but kind of being, uh, you know, uh, reminiscent of how we would view them in 2021. Instead, could not be more wrong. They're looking at the heyday Houston Astros. So Athletics, wrong picking them to win the division. Twins, wrong picking them to win the division. Yankees, wrong picking them to win the division. 0 for 3 in the AL. Maybe the NL is better, right? Hopefully, the NL can be better. It's hard to, you know, get all of these wrong. Maybe the, as an NL guy, a Mets fan myself, I'm more familiar with the league. Got to get those right, right? No. No, 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 no. The Braves picked them to win the NL East so far. They have really mirrored what the Twins have done. The hitting has been fine, Right? The hitting hasn't been the problem in Atlanta. Freddie Freeman is doing what he normally does, which is just a stud of the plate and impossible to get out. Ronald Acuna Jr., unfortunately, before the injury, was a star. Ozzy Albies is solid. They have a ton of great bats up and down the lineup. But similar to the Twins, 
The Braves pitching stinks. 17th and team ERA, which it doesn't, you know, doesn't really do it justice because that's okay, middle of the road, fine. You're a little bit obviously worse than you are better, but you're basically down the middle, right in that middle group of teams. Bullpen, though, has really been the biggest issue and a huge issue now for the Braves. 21st and team ERA, they have blown 13 saves. The bullpen's been anything but reliable, anything but solid. It's been a total disaster right now. And even though the Braves are scoring, the bullpen can't hold on to those leads. And now, Going forward in the second half of the year with the unfortunate Acuna Jr. injury news where he tore his ACL after the rest of the year, it's tough. Braves right now are not in first place. They're hovering around 500. Don't think a turnaround's coming. Mets are in first place. I hope they stay that way. Listen, this is a prediction I am glad I'm wrong about. But I thought the Braves continue their dominance and they made it to the ALCS last year and, and should have made it to the World Series. Blew that to the Dodgers. I don't think and I don't think and I don't see the Braves turning around. That prediction, I believe, will be 0 for 4. The NL Central, I'm gonna give myself a little bit of a break here. You don't have to fine. That's fine. I get it. If I was in your spot, I probably wouldn't give the host a break either. The NL Central by far was the one I felt the least confident in about any team. There was no team I liked in the NL Central because they're all kind of in the middle. They're all kind of just blah. The Cardinals made a nice splash with Anolan Arenado. That team, you know, there's still a lot of holes. The Brewers, after a solid 2019 and awesome run where they were one of the best teams in baseball, go to the a, uh, go to the NLCS. Disappointing 2020 season. The Cubs, I mean, look, the Cubs are going to be sellers at the deadline. The Cubs were a team that weren't even sure what their direction was going to be heading into this season. So I think the Cardinals almost just has a default. All right, you get the Nolan Arenado trade. They're trying to win. I'll go, you know, Cardinals are always usually... A very solid team. I'll go with them. But the Brewers, give them credit, have jumped out in this NL Central lead, a large part because they're pitching. They've had a dominant, dominant pitching staff. Corbin Burns has been really good. Brandon Woodruff has been solid. The bullpen has been extremely, extremely tough so far. Where you get a lead, and they get a lead, and they have plenty. They don't give it up. Very rarely do they do. And really ironically... Because right, you have Christian Yelich, who was the NL MVP two years ago. Or you have some big names in that lineup and some really talented players. But of course, because it's the NL Central, the addition of Willie Adamas, about a month into the season for the, for the Brewers, of course, that is the catalyst. That's the spark that kind of has the Brewers ripping off wins. They won 11 in a row uh, before that streak came to an end, before the All-Star break. Uh, now, they've been a hot team. No one really is playing well, but it looks like the Cardinals are going to be the wrong pick. 0 for 5. Can I get one right so far? These preseason predictions that I have done so far, revisiting them, 0 for 5 of my division winners. Yankees, no. Twins, no. Athletics, no. Braves, no. Cardinals, no. I went, listen, NL West, I went chalk. There was no way I was going to pick a team other than the Dodgers. Now, why would that, why the hell would I pick Listen, I like the Padres. I think they're a playoff team, and I picked them to make the playoffs. I couldn't pick them to usurp, or usurp, I should say, the Dodgers in the NL West. No shots picking the Rockies, the Giants, the D-backs. But I'll give the Giants credit. I, we talked about it before. I'll ask you this question. I'll ask it again. Who has been the most surprising team so far throughout this first half of the MLB season? The answer is the San Francisco Giants. I still can't comprehend how good they've been. They have 57 wins right now, the most in baseball. They have the highest winning percentage. 
They have been a tremendously talented and tough home team. Like, they don't lose at home. They have one of the best home records in all baseball. And to their credit, they have 57 wins. They are leading currently the NL West by two games over the Dodgers. And they're doing so like not by smoke and mirrors, not by feasting on bad teams or having the benefit of an easy schedule early on. They're 24-17 and 17 against teams over 500. They have a winning record and a solid winning record over some of the best teams so far they've played in baseball. Now, with that said, I do think they'll cool off a little, and I do think the Dodgers will end up winning this division. I think this will be the only division winner I get right. Two games so far, so the Dodgers are right there. They've had a slow start, a little injuries, some guys slumping. I do think when it's all said and done, we enter postseason playoff time, the Dodgers will win the NL West. But man, what the Giants have accomplished cannot be overstated. It has been incredible. Never saw the success coming from San Francisco that they're having right now. So, six division winners I picked. Five. Five have been wrong so far. And really, the six, because the Dodgers aren't in first place. I do think the Dodgers will win the NL West when it comes down to it. I don't have faith that any of the five teams I picked, Cardinals, Braves, Athletics, Twins, Yankees, will win their division. Really crushing it here on the Ryan Hickey Show. Going one out of six. With division winners. How about MVP? Right, well, that'll be the final preseason prediction that we'll revisit here. MVP. Did I get any of these correctly? Well, I'll say I'll give myself some credit. I got the team correct. In the ALI and Mike Trout. I think the team is correct. I think an Angels player will win MVP this year. The only issue is going to be Shohei Otani. Leading the league in home runs of 33. 4-1 on the mound. A sub-4 ERA. He's been doing it with the bat. He's been doing it with the glove. Doing it at the plate. Only player in Major League Baseball history to be selected to the All-Star team as both a pitcher and a hitter. He is doing it both ways. He is the AL MVP. The NL, I had Mookie Betts. Kind of did go a little chalked, I'll be honest. But right now, I don't think I'm wrong here. NL MVP is Jacob DeGrom. He has been historically dominant. So far this season. His ERA is sick. No one can even touch him. The only, the only, the biggest thing that's gotten Jacob DeGrom's way so far this year has just been his injuries. Having these weird little cramps and aches and, and creaks kind of roll into his arm. Other than that, he has been untouchable this year. The best pitcher in baseball continues to get better. That's what Jacob DeGrom is doing. So we're going to have, most likely, two pitchers. One of them just hit in Shoya Otani. Two pitchers win the MVP. Zero right. And Mike Trotter and Mookie Betts, no, neither of those guys, I think, will win the MVP. So who has been, in your mind, the most surprising team in good in a good way or a bad way? Positively or negatively? Uh, negatively. Because, you know, you just heard my, ta- uh, my takes and my thoughts there. I have a ton of predictions wrong. Which means teams have surprised. The Yankees, to me, I am honestly very surprised they have struggled as much as they have. I am very surprised the Astros have been as dominant as they have been. Plenty of surprises. Free the answer to the Giants. Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. When we come back, we've got some NFL news to dive into here. We are doing our NFL preview, right? We're going to do kind of top five lists 
every single show leading into the football season. Next, we'll do top five MVP candidates. We've only had two running backs the last 15 years win the MVP award. With that said, in my top five, I do have a running back. I'll tell you who it is when the Ryan Key Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome in to the Ryan Hickey Show, hour number two, here with you going until 11. AM Eastern, as a reminder, we're coming to you live, as we always do, from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, with its great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a fantastic location near you. 15 minutes from now, Russell Wilson went on the media tour this week, spoke with Dan Patrick, spoke with The Ringer, and basically gave us an update into his life after Earlier this year, what happened when he was on the Dan Patrick show, started voicing his frustration with the offensive line, with Pete Carroll not getting enough say. And he basically went on the record and talked about now how things have changed in Seattle. He made two interesting comments that I kind of want to get your thoughts on. We'll play a little game. Do you believe Russell Wilson or is it make-believe? Is he lying to us? We'll do that in 15 minutes or so from now. Before that, it is time for our NFL preview segment. We do this every single show little top five list of all different aspects of the game to get you ready for the 2021 NFL season. Training camp's just about two weeks away. So let's kind of, for this week, for this show, how about we get ready for a fun conversation, the MVP conversation, right? We always love talking about NFL MVPs, who the best player is going to be, who is in line to have a big season, who is going to be the player of the year. And could there be any surprises? Right, Aaron Rodgers last year was a huge surprise coming out of, no, not nowhere, but coming off of an okay 2019 season, and he explodes onto the scene, takes the league over storm, and does win the MVP award this year. So who could be kind of that guy? So we'll give you my top five list, at least of the top five NFL MVP candidates that I think have a legitimate shot to win entering the 2021 season. Number five is going to be a surprise here. Because history does not favor this player winning at all. The last 15 years, basically we could call the NFL MVP award the best quarterback award. Because out of the last 15 years, 13 winners have been quarterbacks. The other two have been running backs. Adrian Peterson, 2012. LaDainian Tomlinson, 2006. Despite history not favoring my pick here, number five of top five NFL MVP candidates for this season I have Christian McCaffrey. I do. I think running back-wise, he has the best shot to win the MVP. And just league-wise, has a legitimate shot to win the MVP this year. Because obviously, it's very tough for non-quarterbacks to do so. We saw Derrick Henry, you know, be the best running back last year. But if there's one running back in my mind that's going to be up for the award, that's going to make a run, that's going to give Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Tom Brady a run... It's going to be CMC. I can't sit here in good faith and tell you it's going to be Derrick Henry. Because look, after last year, what Derrick Henry did, he still wasn't close. All right, there have, there have been eight 
times, or there have been eight, excuse me, eight times a running back has ran for 2,000 or more yards in the NFL season. As we know, Derek Henry was the latest to do so. He did that last year. Four out of the eight who did so won the NFL MVP award. Derrick Henry didn't even finish in the top three last year. So maybe that's an indictment on all of running backs. But for me, I can't sit here and tell you Derrick Henry is going to be a top five NFL MVP candidate when he ran for 2,000 yards last year, had a career year, and didn't receive one MVP vote despite making history. But here's why, despite even his great year last year not resulting in a lot of love for the MVP, here's why I'm feeling confident in Christian McCaffrey, and I truly do think he can win the award this year. Derrick Henry does his damage in one way. That is the ground, right? He is a physical running back. It's not a lot of finesse. It is just, give me the ball. I'm going to run you over. I'm too tough to tackle. I'm too big. I'm too fast. We've seen plenty of players run away from trying to tackle Derrick Henry. It is a task. He is brute. He is he's a guy I'm not meeting in the hole, that's for sure. He's a guy Earl Thomas isn't meeting the hole, or Josh Norman isn't trying to tackle. We have seen Derrick Henry make mincemeat of plenty of big defensive linemen, linebackers, safeties, you name it. People don't want to tackle But while that is very old school, Christian McCaffrey, whether it's for optics, whether it's, you know, how much that impacts the MVP award, Christian McCaffrey is the prototypical 2021 running back. Because not only does he do it on the ground, he is equally as dynamic in the passing game. Now, it's tough because I feel like Christian McCaffrey, when you look at the MVP, is not a guy people think of right away because he didn't really have a big 2020 season, right? He only played three games last year. He was hurt a lot, missed a lot of time. Recency bias does creep in. So if you're going to say, hey, what non-QB can win the award? I think a lot of people's first thought would be Derrick Henry. But let's not forget what, what Christian McCaffrey did the last time he was fully healthy, 2019. In that season, rushed for 1,300 yards. Also had 1,000 receiving yards. Just the third running back in NFL history to both go for over 1,000 on the ground, over 1,000 in the air. And think about this, right? He, he was able to go for 1,000, 1,000 with Kyle Allen starting 13 games that 2019 season. No offense, no disrespect to Kyle Allen. You could do a lot better and have even more success with a better starting quarterback, which in my mind, the Panthers have this year in Sam Donald. I think Donald will be better than Kyle Allen was when he was a starter back in 2019. I think Donald will have a big bounce back year and show the world that, hey, New York was more about the Jets' dysfunction than it was about me not being a good quarterback. So now I think Sam Donald will open up even more opportunities for Chris McCaffrey, both in the passing game and the running game. So I do think he, though, again, it's not hard. Only three guys have ever done it. Christian McCaffrey, Roger Craig, Marshall Falk. This is not a feat that is accomplished ever. So this is a tall task and a kind of high bar I'm setting for Christian McCaffrey. I do think he can rush for 1,000 yards again this year and receive 1,000 yards this year. And I think that, the 1,000 1000 club, doing so both in the, uh, in the air and on the ground, I think that will throw him squarely into the mix for MVP. So Christian McCaffrey, number five on my MVP list, like, he is going to be really squarely in the mix here. And even though history, 13 of the last 15 winners of the MVP award have been quarterbacks, here's sure doesn't favor a non-quarterback winning. There is going to be one non-QB winning. It is going to be Christian McCaffrey, I'm telling you. Big year from CMC. Don't sleep on him. MVP discussion for McCaffrey. He's at number five. Number four, I have Matthew Stafford. Now, it's interesting 
Because now as we kind of creep closer and closer to the NFL season, it seems like finally Matthew Stafford is getting on people's radars and honestly gaining the respect he deserves. When the trade first went down, boom, right away, I thought, okay, the Rams are legitimate Super Bowl contenders. I think it's the Bucks and the NFC one, Rams right there too. I have the Rams behind the Chiefs and the Bucks as the third best team in the NFL. I feel like I'm on an island though. I feel like I'm in the minority in thinking that. But now, the more I read, the more I listen, the more coaches and players and national media talk, Matthew Stafford, for whatever reason, maybe time, maybe people are going back to do more research, he is finally getting the respect he deserves. The latest has been 49ers head coach Kyle Shanahan. He talked about last week how underrated Stafford is. And not only that, how badly he won him on the 49ers before the Rams struck a deal. So obviously you have Jimmy Garoppolo there. This was before the Trey Lance um, draft. Obviously this is back in January when this went down. And now you have Kyle Shanahan. Basically, he was desperate to get, uh, to get Matthew Stafford on the Rams. So it's unfortunate all right, on the 49ers. It is unfortunate that Matthew Stafford's career has largely been in oblivion. Because Detroit has been so bad. There haven't been many resources there. The coaching has been awful. The, the, the organization is dysfunctional. So even though he's put up big-time stats, he's been overlooked. And it's almost like his career has been hidden because the Lions have been so bad. Like, think about it. Matthew Stafford right now. He is the quarterback, the only quarterback, or I should say, Matthew Stafford is the fastest quarterback in NFL history to throw for 20,000 yards, 30,000 yards, 40,000 yards, 45,000 yards. This guy breaks a ton of records, but does so with no one paying attention because the Lions stink. So he's a really damn good quarterback that really, outside of Calvin Johnson, never got the necessary support to translate those stats into wins. So now you look at what Matthew Stafford does have in Los Angeles, one of the best coaches he's ever had in Sean McVay, one of the best... The best running game, even though he hasn't played a snap, but he has the best running game he's ever had. He had the Rams finish top 10 in rushing three of the last four years. Didn't have that ever in Detroit. He's had the best group, not a single individual receiver, best group of receivers he's ever had. Right? They had Calvin Johnson. No one on the Rams can mimic the skill and talent that Calvin Johnson had. When you look at the collective group, when you add the whole together, or you add the sum of the parts together, Cooper Cup is a tremendous, tremendous security blanket. Robert Woods can open it up. Tyler Higby's a really solid tight end option. Van Jefferson showed promise in his rookie year. Deshaun Jackson, now, big question for him, and he has to be healthy, obviously, but he can really take the top of a defense and, and open up the, the deep passing game. So it is all there for the first time in Matthew Stafford's career to have legitimate, not only individual success, team success. And what do we know about the MVP award? A lot of it has to do with individual success. There is a portion that has to do and includes team success. If you're a good player on a good team, that's going to elevate you. And for the first time now, Matthew Stafford's career, his individual success can mirror the team success. That is the recipe to win an MVP. That's why Matthew Stafford at number four. Number three, I have Lamar Jackson. Now let's look back. At 2019, when Lamar Jackson won the MVP award, right? what did he have that year on the Ravens that allowed him to have such a prolific season? He had an elite offensive line. 
he had an extremely efficient both run and pass game. Right? They were lethal. That where they ran the ball, obviously, Tumba did so really well. And we know they don't pass the ball a lot. Like, Lamar Jackson isn't leading the league in passing attempts. I actually believe in 2019, the, the Ravens were dead last in passing attempts. But what they were good at is being efficient. Taking those small sample sizes, passing the ball, making sure teams pay for it. So now when you look, Alito line, extremely efficient run and pass game. That was huge reasons for Lamar Jackson's 2019 MVP award. We look at 2020, where he obviously regressed, did not have anywhere close to the same success he had in 2019, um, and the stats were lower as well. Injuries hurt the offensive line production in 2020. He had Riley Stanley miss the second half of the year, the anchor of that offensive line at left tackle. He was out. He had the wide receivers drop a ton of balls, struggled to get open, so the efficiency went down. So you had a banged up old line, so it was not nearly as elite as it was in 2019. You had receivers that weren't as good, tr- struggling to get open. We saw Marquise Howard Brown especially struggle with drops. They didn't bail Lamar Jackson out. It didn't help him out either. So now when you look at what he had in 2019, what he didn't have in 2020, now you look at 2021, the Ravens, to their credit, addressed the weak points on the offense that are trying to get shored up to replicate what 2019 Lamar Jackson did, right? So look at the offensive line. They made improvements to shore up the offensive line. Ronnie Stanley helps that now he's going to return from that injury and he's going to be on the left tackle after missing the last 12 games of the season. So you get your stud left tackle back, huge for Lamar Jackson. They shored up the right side of the line by signing Kevin Zeidler and Alejandro Villanueva. So now you got the right side shored up. You got the left tackle back. They signed Sammy Watkins, which look, Sammy Watkins is your number one receiver. He's not even number two receiver. But I would say he's reliable enough to where if you throw him the ball, he'll catch it. They drafted Rashad Bateman, a big-bodied receiver that is physical, that can get open, where a lot of the smaller receivers we saw, Devin Duvernay, we just mentioned Hollywood Brown, they struggled to get open. They did physically get bullied on the field at times, which did not allow them to get open. You get a big body now in Rashad Bateman, a bigger receiver in Sammy Watkins, who is reliable. You get that those two additions help bolster the offensive line. I think that will equal a big season for Lamar in 2021. And also, I, I do think that this will carry over here. I believe part of the reason why Lamar will kind of even feel less pressure and kind of get ready to ball out in 2021, I do think winning the playoff game in Tennessee over the Titans last year in the wild card round, I think that's going to take some pressure off of him. Obviously, you know, going to the 2019 season, there's really no pressure on Lamar. He started late. People are really kind of see and intrigued to see what can he do in 20, uh, 2019 in a full season. Obviously, he won the MVP. But as we know, that season ended sourly because they faced the Titans in the playoffs in the, in the first, you know, the second round, but they had the bye, lose that game. So they gave Lamar Jackson 0 for 2 in the playoffs. There was a lot of questions going into year number three in 2020. And at least I know the, the season end, didn't end the way they wanted to. Lamar Jackson, really, even in that Tennessee game, didn't look great. He did it more with his legs than his arm. Didn't really play well at all in Buffalo in the second round of the playoffs. So the season ended on a sour note. But I do think kind of that playoff win will take a little bit of pressure off Lamar Jackson, calm him down a little bit, and allow him to play more loose and more free, which I believe will be a big year and result in a big year for Lamar Jackson. So top five NFL MVP candidates. Who are your top five NFL MVP candidates? Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. My top five so far, Christian McCaffrey five, Matthew Stafford four, Lamar Jackson three. I have Tom Brady at number two. Now, let's look at what Tom Brady has. We're going to, you know, go a little blast in the past here. 
Cavs won the MVP three times. 2007, 2010, 2017. Quickly, that obviously, as we know, that 2017 went 16-0. You had Randy Moss, Wes Wilker both go for over 1,000 yards. Brady threw for 15 touchdowns. Tremendous. 2010, you had that gifted and tremendously talented tight end duo of Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. 2017, that was kind of more of default year. Not a lot of talent on the roster. You had Brandon Cooks and Gronk both, both go for 1,000 yards. But 2017 was more default. Tom Brady won the MVP because he didn't throw a lot of interceptions. And really, no one else played well quarterback-wise to get precedent and jump over Tom Brady. But now, so I bring up 2007, Randy Moss, Russ Walker. 2010, you had Aaron Hernandez and Gronk. 2017, you had Cooks and Gronk, but you know not a ton of talent offensively. You look at this 2020 on Bucks team, this is the most balanced and deep team offensively Tom Brady's ever had. Like, let's look. The offensive line will be a top five unit this year. They are very solid, and you're all going to get better. Ronald Jones, Leonard Fournette was a solid running back combo that, you know, combined rushed for over 1,300 yards in 2020. You return Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown. This is by far the deepest and most balanced team Tom Brady's ever had, including that 07 Patriots team. And last year, Again, we talked about all the, the lack of offseason, lack of familiarity, trying to learn a new offense, new players. He still threw 40 touchdowns last year, more than Patrick Mahomes. Threw for 4,600 yards last year. And that was really despite not feeling comfortable until after the bye, which was week 14. So yeah, Tom Brady's going to have a huge, huge, huge year. Most talent he's ever had. He's finally familiar and comfortable in the offense. Big year coming for Tom Brady. He's at number two, but I got to show respect to right now the best quarterback in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes, to me, is still the number one NFL MVP candidate heading to this season. He's still the best QB to win. Uh, he's still the best QB in the NFL. Think about it. Similar to what we talked about with Lamar Jackson, how some weaknesses last year were short of heading to this year. Same thing for the Chiefs. The biggest weakness for the Chiefs, and we saw it on display, on full display, in the Super Bowl was their offensive line, and they made a ton of moves to make it better. They traded for Orlando Brown Jr. They took him the right tackle on the Ravens. They're making him the left tackle now on the Chiefs. They signed Joe Tooney on the interior to, to show up their guard position. They signed Kyle Long for guard depth. They have made a lot of moves here to replenish and revamp their offensive line to make sure what happened in the Super Bowl doesn't happen again. And obviously that was more injuries than anything else. But they really put a lot of resources into protecting Patrick Mahomes. And honestly, the last thing, right, because we have a lot of recency bias. I'll say it. I am guilty of that as well. So a lot of what happened recently is the last thing kind of we remember. So let's not forget, obviously, the Super Bowl is the last thing we remember from the NFL season. The last image when we hear about Patrick Mahomes is him running for his life. Every single play, getting the ball, dropping back, and there's two or three Buccaneer defenders right in his face. But let's not forget. If we go just past the Super Bowl and look at his 2020 overall in totality, he still finished second in passing yards, 4,780. He could have surpassed 5,000 passing yards if he played in Week 17. He only played in 15 games. He sat out the last game of the year. So he could have went over 5,000 yards again. He threw for 38 touchdowns last year. He had the second fewest interceptions of any quarterback with just six. And he was second in QBR. So this is a guy who had a maybe quote-unquote down year, 
that still was at or near the top in a ton of different categories for quarterbacks. Andy Reid is back. Eric Bieniemy is back. Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Every single weapon skill-wise is back for Patrick Holmes. That, to me, is the reason why he is the number one pick for NFL MVP. If I had to put money down, one guy, I know the odds aren't great because Patrick Holmes is the favorite. There's a reason why he's the best quarterback in the NFL. It's a quarterback award. Patrick Holmes, number one candidate for NFL MVP. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts here. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSR, Ryan underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Do you have Patrick Holmes as the number one candidate for NFL MVP? Or do you have someone else? And could there be a different, a non-QB in the mix? If there was one non-QB candidate you had to nominate, you had to put a few bucks down to think that will win the NFL MVP, who do you think it is? For me, it's Christian McCaffrey. Love to hear your thoughts again. We can get him at Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSR, Ryan underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your NFL MVP candidates when we come back. And also, speaking of NFL MVP candidates, a player not on my list of top five, but a quarterback, a dynamic, prolific quarterback, he had some words to say about what his offseason was. Do you believe him? Or do we not believe him? Play the little believe or make believe when the Ronnie Key Show does return on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. NFL MVP talk on the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports. And Eric is with you. Who are your top candidates for NFL MVP? Christian McCaffrey for me is at number five. Number four, Matthew Stafford. Lamar Jackson coming in at three. Tom Brady, two. And at number one, Patrick Mahomes. Now, there are a few names on there that, you know, we're admitted. I think people have an issue with this. I'll explain myself really quickly. Aaron Rodgers, right? The NFL, the reigning NFL MVP, not a top five NFL MVP candidate. Two reasons for that. Number one, I don't think he is going to be a Packer in 2021. I think he will be traded. I think that's going to happen sooner. Well, at some point, we'll see. It's kind of now in the Packers court. I would be shocked, floored, if he actually does suit up for Green Bay and play in 2021. So for me, tough to kind of play some of your best football when you're getting traded to the Broncos or the Washington football team or whatever team that wants to make a move for Aaron Rodgers a month before the season, maybe even a little less. And that's number one. Second, I do wonder with all these distractions going on in the, po- in the offseason, even if he does somehow return to Green Bay, I'm not convinced that he can replicate what he was able to do in 2020. Not that I'm saying he was bad or that it was lucky. He had a great year. He had an absolute great year. I just wonder, kind of that year coming out of nowhere, if you will, after a few, okay, pretty good years, if he can replicate that again, I don't. So that's why he is not in my top five. I don't have Deshaun Watson. Obviously, his legal issues are a major reason why, also not to mention. And that's another guy whose future with his current team is in serious doubt. Will he play this year? We don't know if he gets traded. 
When will he be traded? Won't be on the field. Will he even be on the field? Another reason why I omitted Deshaun Watson, despite his tremendous 2020 year on a terrible team. And there's one more quarterback I did not put on this list that I think could get some pushback. Russell Wilson. And I want to I saved that for last on purpose because I want to kind of get into this next topic here. Because Russell Wilson, as we know, has had an interesting offseason, to say the least, right? He goes on Dan Patrick, basically says, Oh, you know, my offensive line, I don't want to be hit as much. Then has a press conference with the local Seattle media. Says out basically, yeah, you know, I've I um, want more control in the team. Then you have the big athletic article come out where Russell Wilson, there's reports and stories how Russell Wilson is frustrated that. Basically, it's Pete Cow's way of the highway. He doesn't have input on the team. And we had that whole firestorm discussing, will Russell Wilson be in Seattle? Will he be traded? Will he force a trade? Then you had his agent leak out four teams he would want to be traded to. There was a lot of hoopla coming out of Seattle. I thought he was going to get traded. I believed that, I'll be honest. Now he's sitting here on July 15th. He is not going to be traded this year. But earlier this week, on the Dan Patrick Show, in one instance, and talking to the Kevin Clark of the Ringer in another instance, he had a few interesting comments that I want to tell you about. In case you miss it. And play a little game here. Play a little game. Believe or make believe. I'm going to read you two statements that Russell Wilson said this week, talking about not only the Seahawks going forward in 2021, but also his relationship with Pete Carroll. Do you believe it? Do you believe what Russ is saying? Or do you think he's just full of it? And even though now... You know, they're not going to get traded. Is this going to be a bigger issue going forward? So comment number one I want to ask you about, whether you believe or not believe. When speaking with Dan Patrick, Russell Wilson said his relationship with Pete Carroll is the strongest it's ever been. Miskey highlighted, excuse me, how all this offseason noise brought them closer together. They are on the same page. And Russ says, at least outwardly, him and Pete's relationship has never been stronger. Do you believe that? Or is it make-believe? Free my answer, make-believe, and here's why. I still don't view Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson as an equal partnership. That's what Russell Wilson writes, right? He wants say in the offense. He wants say in the game plan. He wants say in personnel. That would mean him and Pete Carroll, in a way, would be on similar ground, similar footing when it comes to decision-making for the team. I don't think, though, that's actually how the partnership is. I still think it's a boss and employee relationship. And as we know, I know and you know, in the working world, in the non-NFL world, there's not many collaborative bosses out there that listen to employees, that take their feedback, that seek out their feedback when making decisions about budgeting or what moves to make. Or should they let somebody go? Or should they bring in somebody new? Right? The boss, usually in a classic workplace setting, says the rules, makes the rules, and expects the employees to follow them blindly. Right? We've all had issues with our bosses one way or another. They say, basically, it's my way or the highway. They're the boss. You don't get fired. Fine. I'll do it. Begrudgingly, but you do it. That's how, really, that's what led to Russell Wilson kind of being frustrated this offseason and having it get to a point where he felt like he had to speak out against the organization because if not, nothing was going to change. That's the entire genesis of the reason why Russell Wilson voices frustration. It wasn't about the offensive line. It had something to do with it, but he was more mad that Pete Carroll basically was his way or the highway, and Russell Wilson, despite being 
one of the best quarterbacks in the game, a top three NFL quarterback, didn't have the say, didn't have the voice and the power that maybe he should have. But I don't see that that relationship changing. I still think it's Pete Carroll, the boss, Russell Wilson, the employee. So they mended fences now, right? You have Russell Wilson saying, oh, me and Pete are tight. Obviously, you know, he's talking about the offseason now. It got blown out of proportion. He thinks in his mind maybe it's a whole lot of noise, but really he never thought it was kind of close to getting traded. And now he's just focused on the season, happy to be there. I will say this. Despite publicly speaking and saying the right things, I don't really see Pete Carroll changing his stripes. Do you? I'll say this. He's 70. He'll be turned 70 years old in September. Pete Carroll is a guy that I view as someone set in his ways. One of his ways that he truly believes, and I think is personally in the NFL, in today's current NFL, wrong, he still believes defense wins championships. Right? Isn't that the whole reason why the second half of the year he reined Russell Wilson in, reeled him in? So even though he was cooking, even though he was throwing a ton of touchdown passes, he wanted to limit the turnovers. He was afraid that all the turnovers were going to hurt his defense. And even though they're scoring a ton of points, the defense wasn't good. And to limit him, give the, the, the uh, defense a shot here. So Pete Carroll reined in the offense, fired Brian Schottenheimer, despite the fact that Russell Wilson liked Shotty as an OC, even after the season, and he wanted him around. So Pete Carroll still got his way last year, still has gotten his way his entire career. So I'll ask you this question. Do you actually think Pete Carroll will change now? 70 years old, he's won a Super Bowl, he's been to two, he's won national championships at USC. He has done things his way, and to his credit, it's been successful. But to win a Super Bowl now in today's day and age, you have to adjust. It is an offensive-driven league. Right now, Pete Carroll said his ways that defense still wins championships. So even though publicly, Pete Carroll saying the right thing, tell me and Russ are on the same page. Russell Wilson saying our relationship has never been stronger. I think we'll be fine. If a rough patch hits this season, if the offense is sputtering, if they're in a maybe a two or three game losing streak, if they play another, if they have another early postseason exit like they did last year, where they lost to a quarterback, to a backup quarterback in John Wolford. And Jared Goff, who Sean McVay wanted no part of, where if he could suit up, I'm sure he would have played quarterback or over Jared Goff, who had a broken thumb. And you lose to that Rams team at home. If a rough patch hits, I think Pete Carroll will panic and go back to what he knows best. Defense, when championships, which means he would not allow Russ to cook again. Now, there have been positive discussions and there's been positive PR that Russ likes the new offensive coordinator Shane Waldron. Even though he didn't approve the Brian Schottenheimer firing, he likes the new offensive coordinator. But I'll say this, even though he likes him now, he, may, you know, he might like him in the first half of the season if he's throwing a ton of touchdown passes again and the offense is opening it up. If Pete Carroll tries to rein in Pete, uh, Russell Wilson again, excuse me, they'll have another blow up. That could be, that will be, I should say, the final nail in the coffin for divorce between Pete Cal and Russell Wilson. So they could say their relationship is stronger than ever now. I'm telling you, the first time Pete Cal tries to rein in the offense, try to put handcuffs on Russell Wilson again, just like we saw last year in the second half of the year, we're going to have this all over again. This is going to be a year-by-year basis. The last thing I feel confident in saying is that Russell Wilson will finish his career as a Seahawk. Because as long as Pete Carroll is there, it's going to be Pete's way 
or the highway. Defense wins championships. Offense just basically don't get in the way. And right now, that's going to lead, I think, to Russell Wilson truly getting frustrated if nothing changes. Even though they're saying outwardly something has changed now, if nothing actually does change tangibly, we'll be sitting here this time again next year talking about Russell Wilson on a different team. So his first comment about him and Pete having the stronger relationship, stronger than it's ever been, I think is make-believe. I do. I think when you know rubber hits the road here, when we have uh, an issue where there's two forks, Pete's going to go back to the defensive route and be conservative on offense. That's going to drive Russell Wilson crazy. We're going to have another issue where they're both going to be public, uh, publicly feuding about which side is right, trying to strangle power and rip power from another. So that's the first thing. Comment number two. He was talking to the Kevin Clark of the Ringer. And he said, oh, you know, I've liked this offseason a lot. Russell Wilson said, the Seahawks have it all to win the Super Bowl. They have all the pieces necessary to win the Super Bowl. Believe or make believe? For me, that's a believable statement. I do think he's correct in saying that. The Seahawks have had a solid offseason. They have, in some ways, listened to Russ and given him what he wanted because they added Gabe Jackson to bolster their offensive line. They were able to re-sign Chris Carson. They added Gerald Everett, a solid tight end, which they really have been missing for a while out there in Seattle. To You know, you pair him now with DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. This is a Super Bowl-caliber team right now on paper. So Russ is right. They have it all to win. There is a caveat here, though. I do want to throw in there. When I say I believe this comment that Russ is right, that the Seahawks are a Super Bowl-caliber team. They have it all. Seattle has it all. They will be in the Super Bowl mix if, and only if, this is the caveat, if Russ is allowed to cook. If not, if we see more second-half Seahawks, let me do first-half Seahawks, this team is going to be another early first-round exit. They'll, be, they'll, be a, they'll make the playoffs. They won't go far in the playoffs because when you have an offense that's so watered down, that's so vanilla in the playoffs, you will get exposed, and we saw the Rams do that quickly. On the road in week uh, in the wild card round, excuse me. So this team is only a Super Bowl contender, only a Super Bowl winner. Excuse me. If the team goes through Russell Wilson, not ask him to basically get out of the way, not ask him to lose the game. This team is Super Bowl caliber if it's led through Russell Wilson. Because let's not forget, let's look at last year. As soon as the clamps were put down on the offense, that's really when the season was over. They're winning games, but they were never viewed as true Super Bowl threats in the second half of the year because the offense was hard to watch. So even though the defense, which was historically bad the first eight games of the year, did improve down the stretch the last nine games of the year, if you include the, the playoff game, when Russ was forced, when Russ was forced to dial it back, they didn't have a shot. Because guess what still wins in the NFL? Offense. Good offense still does beat good defense. So when you look at what the Seahawks, when Pete Carroll reined it in, when he put the handcuffs on Russell Wilson in this offense, basically wanted him to play careful football. We're not going to be aggressive. We're just going to take three yards in a cloud of dust. The Seahawks averaged just 22.7 points per game the last nine games of the year. Even though the defense improved, that isn't winning you a Super Bowl. That equals a first-round exit in the playoffs. So, yeah, Russ is right. They have the talent on paper to win a Super Bowl. They absolutely do. It's only now up to Pete Carroll 
to either let Russell Wilson win you a Super Bowl or if you're afraid of that, result in probably a first round exit and probably result in your quarterback leaving town. If you let Russ cook, this is a Super Bowl team. If not, if you treat him like Ryan Tannehill or Kirk Cousins or Daniel Jones, if you treat him with kid gloves, if you are cautious around the offense, you are not winning a Super Bowl. You're not. You're absolutely not. So let's see your thoughts. Do you think in your mind, are the Seahawks Super Bowl contenders? Are they legitimately up there with the Bucks, with the Chiefs, with the Rams in winning a Super Bowl? Or are you not believing it? Even though the pieces are there, do you not trust Pete Cow to get the most out of this team? Do you think this team, while good, could have another early postseason exit like we saw last year? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts. And when we come back, We'll circle back game number four in the Bucks. Bucks even the series at two games apiece. Who are you feeling confident moving forward to win the NBA Finals and now a best of three situation? I'll tell you who I'm picking to win the Finals when the Ryan Key Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio. We hope you are not only listening to this show every Monday and every Thursday on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Also listen to the great other shows we have all day and night, weekend, weekday. On the Worldwide Sports Network, a ton of great betting shows. As you hear, Aaron Marks on this network a lot. Host, excuse me, every Wednesday and Thursday night, 9 to midnight. Also hosts the Weekend Crunch. He does it all here, week weeknights, weekends. Wise guys, there is a ton of great shows on this network. And easily, the best way to stay up to date and in tune with all of them is by liking and following our social media handles. Facebook. Worldwide Sports and Eric's where you can find us there. Throw us a like. You'll get an update every time a show goes live. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. WWSRN underscore radio. While you're on there, maybe you want to throw me a like, uh, a favorite, or a, holy cow, a like favorite. How about a follow? We'll go with that. Maybe not after just that butcher job. At Ryan Hickey Show on uh, on Twitter. or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Network. Website, WorldWideSportsRadio.com. And our app, the easiest, simplest, best way to find all of our content at the click of a button. That's so easy, right? We love simplicity. We love easiness. The app, WWSRN, if you have an iPhone, Worldwide Sports Network. If you have an Android, is where you can find the great app. So as we wrap up here on this Thursday, uh, Thursday morning, quickly, Bucks win game number four, even this series at two games apiece. Going forward now, games five, six, and seven. Who's winning? It's a, it, you know, the home team has won all four games so far. Who are you picking to win the finals? For me, I am still sticking with the Suns. I still think, despite the fact they've lost two games in a row, there was a lot of, there's a few things I saw in game number four that I think won't carry over for the rest of the series. I think we're specifically only going to be in, in game number four. Turnovers. 
we rarely see the Suns turn the ball over. They turn the ball over 17 times. Last night was a big reason why the uh, Bucks were able to get back in the game. Chris Paul had five turnovers himself. Has really struggled of late. This is a guy who historically has been able to handle the ball and take care of it in the best way possible. I don't think, and I'm not banking on the fact that he's going to turn the ball over five more times in game number five and beyond. I think his ball security will, will improve. I think part of that was even he admitted to himself the sloppy ball handling kind of got out of his rhythm. He wasn't really hitting the shots. I think a lot of that had to do with trying to force feed Devin Booker early after that, you know, that game number three in which he struggled a lot, and that worked. 42 points for Devin Booker. I, mean, I think it did get CP3 out of a little bit of rhythm. If we get back now going to game number five, where the offense can really flow and find the open shot, I think that will kind of benefit the Suns and also help CP3 to maybe not force some passes or, or force some looks for some guys and instead kind of naturally flow through the offense. So I think turnover numbers will go down for this series. I think that's anomaly for 17 turnovers in game number four. Foul trouble, as we know, was huge in putting Devin Booker on the bench despite the fact he was white hot in this game, scoring 42 points, having 18 of those points come the third quarter alone where he didn't miss a shot, had to miss half the fourth quarter, sitting on the bench with those five fouls. I think they'll be smarter about making sure Devin Booker is not in foul trouble in game number five and beyond. And honestly, I know last night the Bucs were the better team in crunch time, right? Chris Middleton himself, I should say, was the best player in crunch time last night, scoring 10 points the final two minutes and 15 seconds of that game, while the Suns as a team were able to muster just four points. So Chris Middleton, tie game late down the stretch, was able to outscore the Suns by himself 10 to 4. With that said, though, and even though in game number four went the Bucks' way in terms of finishing strong, I do think, though, moving forward, the, the Suns do have the, um, do have our strength, I should say, is finishing late in games, but the Bucks, that's something they consistently have struggled with all season long or all postseason long, in part because the Suns are the Bucks only rely on one player, Chris Middleton. That's it. They rely on Chris Middleton late in the game. Either he hits shots and wins them the game or doesn't, and the Bucks lose. Like, look, Giannis Antetokounmpo, right, best player on the Bucks, didn't take a shot in the game last night, the last three minutes and 40 seconds of the game. I'm not even saying that's on Giannis because they did the right thing in feeding Chris Middleton. But it goes to highlight a bigger point in that late in the game, especially if it's close, Giannis isn't the focal point of the offense. It's Chris Middleton. And the only issue with that is that Chris Middleton is a guy that we've seen be a streaky shooter. In games, from game to game, he has gone on some horrific shooting droughts. He's also been white hot, like we saw last night, scoring 40 points, 14 in the fourth quarter. Uh, in game six, against the Hawks, he was incredible. He scored 20 points in the fourth quarter alone in game number three against Atlanta for a big victory. He has multiple times this postseason put the Bucks on his back in the postseason. Late in the stretch, I should say. Down the stretch. But I do think because the Suns have Devin Booker and Chris Paul and Cam Johnson and DeAndre, they have multiple options to throw them the ball late to try to score a bucket. Whereas for me, the Bucs just have one Chris Middleton. I think it's a lot to ask of Middleton now down the stretch of these last few games to rely on him every single game to basically win you the game by himself. I think it's a lot. So to me, that's why I think the Suns do have the advantage late in the game. So a lot of th things we saw in game number four, to be honest there, I do kind of view this game as the Bucs won. They played great, don't get me wrong. I do think the Suns gave the game away though. The Suns lost this game just as much as the Bucs won it.
So going forward, I don't think that'll be the case. I do think the Suns will still win this series. I do. I still think the Suns will remain NBA champions and hoist that Larry O'Brien trophy when it's all said and done. Game this, I will say this series and this finals has been incredibly, incredibly exciting. So much fun to watch and looking forward to the next two, maybe three games as well because it's been that great so far. So that'll do for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. I do want to give two quick, very quick shout-outs here before we, we do get out. I want to give a quick shout-out to my mother. She does not like the publicity, so I'll keep this very short, I promise, but today is her last day working. Officially retiring. She worked now the last 15 years at a public school in her house in the um, administration office. July 15th, she's officially hanging it up. So congratulations, Mom. Welcome to retirement. Very jealous now that the rest of your life will be Spend relaxing, do whatever the hell you want. Must be very nice. But congratulations, very well deserved. Enjoy the last day of work and enjoy, enjoy retirement. And quickly, we'll say a very shameless plug here. Very excited. Tomorrow evening, I will have the opportunity to fill in for Zach Gelb on CBS Sports Radio, um, hosting from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern. So usually the only time I get to host is on this great network. A lot of fun here. But now, very thrilled for the opportunity to host on CBS Sports Radio. Can check it out if you want to. And if you're sick of me, if you think, hey, listening to me twice a week is enough, you can't blame me there. But I'll try to get your weekend started, hopefully on a good note. 6 to 10 Eastern, Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y, is where you can check us out. Just type in CBS Sports Radio, cbssportsradio.com. You can listen live. Sirius XM Channel 206. We're on a ton of affiliates nationwide as well. I'm really excited for this opportunity. It should be hopefully a lot of fun. We'll see how the show goes. Hopefully we won't screw it up too much there and, uh, and get going. But hopefully this is not a one and done. But very excited and very thrilled for the opportunity to uh, be filling in for Zach and, um, and get that opportunity tomorrow night, 6 to 10 Eastern. So if you want to check it out, I'll put it on Twitter, Odyssey app, CBSSportsRare.com is where you can check out um, the show as well tomorrow night, 6 to 10 Eastern. So now that will do it for the Reineke Show on this Thursday morning. Appreciate you starting your morning with us wherever you're listening, whenever you're listening. We do appreciate that. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay safe. And hopefully I'll talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to me tomorrow on the Worldwide Sports. Here we go. Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio.